0: and thanks for tuning in again. I'm Ashley Mueller with the GCSP and welcome to episode three, the final episode of this mini series on responsibility to protect revisited. In this episode, Tobias and Gareth explore strategies for prevention, a plea for mitigation and an optimistic call to action in R2P.
1: You mentioned military preparedness before, um, but you also said that, you know, like, R2P is mainly a preventive uh, instrument, and a preventive uh, concept of the norms, etc. Uh, the question then w- would be, well, can you link one thing, namely use a force, together with the prevention? And and, and, and that, in general, in security uh, studies, you talk about deterrence, like in a sense, is there a way of linking both together in a sense of saying, okay, you could say, if you're going to do this and that, we are going to uh, react and, 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 and therefore actually threaten to react and threaten to harm, and that therefore actually, although military force or user force is, is a reactive tool, actually have a preventive effect. Number one, is that something that you were you were thinking about? Number two, is this even feasible? Uh, because what that would re- require is that the threat is pretty credible, that the leader does not uh, commit uh, mass atrocities uh, because the leader is afraid of, of the reaction. Is, is that something that... that was debated. Is that something that that is realistic, or is that something that even is goes so down the cynical road of using force uh, for humanitarian purposes that that is just not uh, uh, should, shouldn't be thought about?
2: Well, of course, it's the case that if someone about to embark a, on a atrocity course fears the risk of military retaliation, that is bound to concentrate that person's mind pretty comprehensively, but. That's so many steps away from what one can be sure you'll be able to deliver given all the hurdles you've got to overcome, the criteria that you've got to satisfy of both legality and legitimacy, that I think uh, you know, the notion that this would have any immediate deterrent impact is pretty pretty long bow to stretch. That said, if we do better at creating the kind of rapid reaction forces – credible response forces that have been talked about in the same we've talked about in a un volunteer force for decades but that's frankly never going to get off the ground but if the the nato response force the nrf i mean can be thought of as an available resource ready and willing and able to be mobilized very quickly to deal with these situations if all the other things fall into place the other criteria fall into place if the eu battle groups concept ever gets off the ground in any credible militarily deliverable fashion so that you do have um, multilateral uniform personnel available and, you know, trained and ready and battle ready to go in these situations should they be called upon, then of course that might make a little bit more credible. It would at least um, satisfy the third basket of practical deliverability of that response. Uh, whether you'd get the security Council buy- in to give you a legal cover for it or whether you'd have so much legitimacy um, satisfaction with the the moral criteria in the middle that you'd be prepared to to go ahead anyway without that uh, legal criterion be satisfied all these are things that um, you know would have to be satisfied before you could before you could make that connection of course I mean the same sort of argument applies with respect to international criminal court prosecutions you not only want to have an effective ICC system because you don't you hate to see people getting away with stuff. And, and, you know, the notion of impunity is, is pretty horrible to have to, uh, to live with. Of course, it's also the case that if the ICC system was functioning properly and people were brought to trial and convicted, with a reasonable prospect of being apprehended and having to serve their punishment, that would be a pretty systematic and serious deterrent for such things in the future. So it is important to build in deterrent capability where you can. But when we talk about prevention, I think um, overwhelmingly the focus is on other mechanisms, other strategies. It's trying to deal with the root causes of these situations. It's trying to put together, uh, you know, whether it's legal and constitutional strategies to give better rights protection for minorities, or whether it's economic strategies to get rid of economic grievance of a kind that can generate hostility, which results in group and ethnicity directed, but basically economically driven hostility. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which you can do things. Things aimed at better governance, all of these things are a part of the preventive toolbox and um, eminently worth doing, uh, both in a long-term sense and in a short-term sense, uh, and you know, endlessly worth putting more resources into. But if you can put a bit of icing on the cake with some deterrent capability of the kind we've been talking about, then so much the better. Big remaining question, let me just address it finally before we move on, is that what do you do in those situations? I'm asked this over and over again. Where? <laughs> The criteria of legitimacy are manifestly satisfied, but for whatever reason, cynical, opportunistic, indefensible it might be, you cannot get a Security Council resolution passed because one of the big powers is exercising a veto, Russia or China or whatever. What do you do in those situations? Do you just accept that and say, well, under no circumstances can military force be contemplated because that legality criterion hasn't been satisfied? Or is there some other way through it? We all want to think there's some sort of way through it when we confront these incredibly indefensible vetoes. And the Kosovo case in 1999, I think, is the one that sticks in most people's memory as a pretty I mean, there's still one or two people take a different view, but basically people say this is the classic case of every criterion of legitimacy being satisfied, but the criterion of legality wasn't. Nonetheless, US, UK, France went in and did their stuff in Kosovo, and serious genocidal massacres were arguably averted as a result. Was that an indefensible thing to do? None of us really want to say it is, but how how do you intellectually deal with that dilemma? It's very, very real. We struggled with a way to handle that in our report, and I'm not sure that we quite got it right. What i found talking about this and thinking about this in subsequent years is that the best way of answering this is, I think, by, um, by reference to the, uh, the domestic law principle, certainly in common law jurisdictions. I think it's equally applicable in Roman law jurisdictions and others around the world. The idea of the plea in mitigation, the idea of the plea in mitigation, you don't contest that what you did was illegal, technically. But you throw yourself on the mercy of the judicial authority by saying it was so morally defensible in all the circumstances that I ought not to be actually punished or not punished with any degree of severity. Yes, officer, I did run the red light. I acknowledge I ran the red light. I was in breach of the law but I had to get my wife to the hospital. She's giving birth to a baby in the back seat. You know, that sort of case, a plea in mitigation, utterly familiar, utterly morally familiar, I think, to to all of us. And provided you don't overdo it, and provided you don't make that plea in mitigation every second week, for some case, everything's an exception. Uh, I think you can live with the reality that from time to time, there are going to be cases. And maybe the Duma, the response to the chlorine, even though... It was thought to be sarin. It wasn't sarin. It was actually chlorine, and maybe that wasn't da-da-da-da-da. It was a defensible response, I think, in terms of the criteria of legitimacy, even though there was no legal foundation for it. I think Kosovo was certainly uh, legitimate. Uh, but you ought, you've got to think long and hard uh, before ever going down that particular path. But that's the way I was sort of try to, to navigate my way through that dilemma. But don't let's pretend that it's not a dilemma. It's a very, very real one. Would you really prefer that we had nothing at all? Look, I completely accept. That there's an awful lot of cynicism out there, there's an awful lot of non-performance out there, there's an awful lot of utter disappointment in terms of effective implementation all the ways we mentioned. But are we worse off for having a degree of international consensus now in the way that we had zero consensus? In the 1990s, we had the North very obsessed about humanitarian intervention, but never prepared very often to do anything about actually delivering on it. We had the Global South utterly resistant to the whole idea of the right to intervene. We've now at least got that conceptually together. We've got an acceptance of the basic principle that it is actually everybody's business. We've got an acceptance of the necessity for, you know, institutional steps to be taken. We've got a lot of effective action taken on the preventive side, which doesn't ever get acknowledged, and we've got the failures, yes, on the reactive side. But are we we worse off as a result? I mean, you really, really have to work hard to argue that, I think. And what you've got to do when you're confronted with this sort of disappointment, you know, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's optimists and there's pessimists. There's pessimists who say the world's a crappy place, that people are going to always be motivated by selfishness, by greed, by ambition, or by idiocy, and there's nothing we're ever going to be able really to do about it. We just have to accept that reality. Or there's optimists who say the world's a shitty place and things keep on going wrong, but that just means... We've got to recognise that we've got to work that much harder if we are going to get decency standards, common humanity standards, cooperative strategies effectively put into place. And look, if you approach life as a complete pessimist, you just don't get out of bed in the morning. At least if you're sort of optimistic and do put the rosy spectacles on occasionally and say with a little bit more effort and attention and... We can make this actually work. Wheels do turn. Things do change. Because otherwise, just that that sense of uselessness of everything is exactly the kind of thing that means that, you know, we'll, we'll never make the world remotely a better place.
0: That's all we have now for this mini-series. Thank you for listening and thank you to Mr. Tobias Fessner and Professor Honorable Gareth Evans for this important conversation on Responsibility to Protect Revisited. Keep this playlist rolling and listen to our other episodes, part of the GCSP special 25th anniversary podcast series. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud. Click the next button and get to the next episode.